they're theme park rides. You know, they're only kind of movies. And I think that's by design. Actually, I don't think it's by design. I know it's by design because one of the people who wrote a bunch of the movies told me that. And I was like, oh, oh, okay, I get it now. Like Aaron Kruger told me, he was like, oh yeah, Michael Bay doesn't care about a lot of the stuff that you think you're supposed to care about when you're making a narrative movie. He doesn't consider his competition to be other movies coming out. He considers his competition to be Disneyland. And so that's what we're trying to create. And it was kind of like, click, unlocked, oh, I get it. Hello and welcome to the Box Office Podcast. This is Rebecca Polly, Deputy Editor of Box Office Pro, the pulse of theatrical exhibition since 1920. I haven't been on the podcast here in a while. Uh, for anyone wondering if I have been fired by Daniel for not having seen all the Rocky movies, I have not. We will be hearing from Daniel Loria, the Editorial Director of Box Office Pro in our feature segment, along with Box Office Studios' Romeo Duchesne and Russ Fisher. They will be recapping the Box office history of the Transformers franchise. But leading into that, it is myself and box office pro analyst Jesse Rifkin. I did not see anything over this past weekend because I recently moved, so I was going through all the the hell of that. But I do have uh, my ticket coming up for, actually for the day that this podcast is coming out, for Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, which is, of course, the main box office story that we'll be talking about in this episode. Uh, But before we get to that, really quickly, we do have a couple of news items. Uh, one, AMC Theaters has uh, joined with Vudu, which is owned by Fandango, to be their official streaming platform. Uh, and secondly, Regal has also made a deal, this one a 10-year deal with National Cinemedia, a long-term advertising agreement that certainly comes as good news for the company after it filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in April. In non-Spider-Verse news, at this uh, past week's box office, we had horror film Boogeyman, not not really holding up to the horror films are doing great. Horror films are overperforming uh, with a 12.3 million debut, ranking it in third place just behind the second weekend of Little Mermaid, which had a drop of about 57.5%. But I mean, all everyone's talking about is, of course, Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse. I mean, I've heard amazing things. I've, I've tried to like kind of stay off and not see a lot of it just because I know I'm already going to see it and I don't want to get my expectations too high. Um, but Jesse, a lot of people did see it over the weekend. What are we looking at in terms of box office? Well, $120.6 million opening weekend. That is the number eight highest opening weekend of all time for an animated movie. So we're talking an excellent, excellent opening weekend. It opened 3.4 times as high, more than triple as high as its 2018 predecessor, which was Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. But yeah, I mean, it's crazy. On that opening weekend for Across the Spider-Verse, it earned like, well, like 63% of what its predecessor made total. Like by the time you're listening to this this podcast, we're recording it on Monday. And if you're listening to it when it comes out, it's on Thursday. It'll be real, real, real close to surpassing. Yeah, by, by, by Thursday, it'll probably be yeah, somewhere around 80%. Uh, of the, its predecessors total. And I anticipate that by the end of its second weekend, it will probably have matched or eclipsed its predecessors total after just two weekends. So what is it likely to drop in its second weekend? Well, again, its predecessor dropped 53% in its sophomore frame. So we're probably looking at 
somewhere around that here, maybe even a little more just because it's going to be losing out a lot of the IMAX screens with its higher ticket prices to uh, Transformers Rise of the Beast, which comes out this weekend. I mean, it's going to have, I mean, it already has crazy word of mouth that definitely helped with the first one. And my money will be in there getting it to the same box office that the first one had its first two weeks, which is insane. Uh, Yeah, Jesse, and internationally, what are you looking at? Because I know with the first one, there was a bit of a weird situation of Into the Spider-Verse opened higher internationally than it did domestically. And then later on, it kind of switched. What are we looking at this time? The comparisons are a little apples to oranges because the original one had something of a staggered release. For example, on its opening weekend, it did not open in China on its opening weekend. This time, its opening weekend did include China. So for for that reason and a few others, it's, it's hard to compare exactly. But this one had an international opening of about $88 million for a total global opening weekend of $208 million. So for comparison, that means it's already earned 55%, more than half of its predecessor's global total just in its opening weekend alone. That's really, really impressive. That's great. And and speaking of China, Jesse, looking at some of these figures from IMAX, uh, where the film earned $20 on its first weekend in IMAX, the second biggest animated opening uh, for IMAX of all time, $2.7 of that uh, was from China, which took in 16.5% of the box office for that weekend on only 1% of the screens, which is, I mean, I don't even know if we can say it's crazy or it's unexpected uh, at this point, given how well premium formats, including IMAX, have been over-indexing. But I mean, I, you love to te- see those statistics. We're now entering the summer movie season where, Jesse, as you mentioned, we're going to see a really kind of rapid turnover of, of those IMAX screens. I mean, Spider-Verse is not getting two weeks, really, because this upcoming weekend, it is going to, to Transformers Rise of the Beasts, the sixth or seventh film in the Transformers franchise depending on uh, on whether you count the spin-off Bumblebee. So yeah, I mean if you uh, if you want to get out and uh, and see a Spider-Verse on on premium formats, maybe do it before the Thursday previews start tonight. In fact, the new Transformers will only have one week on most IMAX screens too because only a week after that The Flash is coming out in IMAX. So a lot of these films only have about 7 days in which you can really catch them on the on the biggest screens. Well, I bought my tickets for um, the opening weekend for Oppenheimer in IMAX 70 millimeter, and I thought I was getting them early. But by the time I got there a few days back, it was like pretty, pretty full already. Granted, that's like one of a very, very small number of of, uh, theaters screening it in that that Formax IMAX 70. But like if you want to see something in in Screen X and ICE and IMAX and any of those premium formats, uh, don't sleep on it because you're going to miss your shot. And speaking of Transformers Rise of the Beasts, in our feature segment, as mentioned at the top of this podcast, we do have Daniel Luria, Russ Fisher, and Romeo Duchenne breaking down the box office history of that franchise, which is a franchise that was really hugely influential in uh, kind of crafting the modern ecosystem of box office, where international take has really uh, become more and more important. Uh, for those interested in this film and the franchise, you can also go to boxofficepro.com to check out Daniel's interview with Stephen Capel Jr., director of Transformers Rise of the Beasts. Please stay with us for that breakdown of the Transformers franchise after this break. 
And we are back here on the Box Office Podcast in our feature segment, going over the box office history of the Transformers franchise leading up to this weekend's release of Transformers Rise of the Beasts coming to movies nationwide and in a lot of overseas markets from Paramount Pictures. We've got here Romeo Duchenne from the Box Office Company and Russ Fisher, the editorial director of the Box Office Studios, a division of our company which provides editorial services for movie theaters. I spent last weekend watching 10 Fast and Furious movies for the first time. I spent this weekend watching six Transformers movies for the first time. Woo! I mean, this seems like a Super Size Me remake of just watching like global franchises that I hadn't seen. I'm just, it's a very Morgan Spurlocky experiment that I'm going through. Um, let's start with this with like general recollections of putting both of you guys on the spot. Let's start with Russ here. How would you describe the Transformers franchise for someone like me two weeks ago who had not seen a single one of them? They're theme park rides. You know, they're only kind of movies. And and I think that's by design. Uh, actually, I don't think it's by design. I know it's by design because one of the people who wrote a bunch of the movies told me that a number of years ago. And I was like, oh, oh, okay, I get it now. Like, you know, Aaron Kruger told me, he was like, oh yeah, Michael Bay doesn't care about a lot of the stuff that you think you're supposed to care about when you're making a narrative movie. And he's like, the, the, he doesn't consider his competition to be other movies coming out. He considers his competition to be Disneyland. And so that's what we're trying to create. And it was kind of like, click, unlocked, oh, I get it. And that's what this, these movies are competing with that, essentially. So we're not really stacking these movies to other films or other examples that are out there. We're stacking these movies to a visceral experience of enjoying spectacle. The only difference is you're enjoying the spectacle from the comfort of a movie theater seat with nice air conditioning over the summer. And I got to say, I mean, I, uh, you know, I was, I was, uh, you know, a preteen in the early eighties when the Transformers came to the U S when the cartoon debuted and the toys, there was no bigger fan of the Transformers as a child than, than I was, you know, I was super, super into it. Like that was the post star Wars thing kind of was Transformers for me. I loved them. Um, I watched the cartoon, you know, I was, I, I had the toys, the whole thing. But I haven't necessarily carried that into my adult life. On the contrary of you, uh, Russ, uh, uh, I never actually played with uh, with the toys, and uh, and I remember when the, the movie with Shia LaBeouf released in two thousand seven, I was actually the perfect audience because I was in high school. I think I, w- I had the same age as Shia LaBeouf at the time, so I actually I actually I built a lot of empathy for uh, for this character, thanks to this um, generational stuff. So so yeah, total different experience, but yeah. Yeah, it's interesting how, how how we how we look at these movies and our experience watching it and our connection to I to this uh, IP, this intellectual property. Uh, I remember seeing pictures of like my first six months as a baby, and I'm lying down on a Transformers branded comforter. So it's all the little Transformers toys, and there I am, a bald baby, just lying down. There's, these pictures are, are are in my house, and that was my connection. I guess I didn't grow up with uh, with the series or the toys as um, I got older, but yeah, that that early to mid '80s cultural impact that these toys had, I think it's not unfair to say it didn't really carry through. There are other Hasbro toys and properties that didn't also make it past the Saturday morning cartoon of the 1980s, never really transitioned into anything else. But at the same time, guys, 
they weren't really packaged to do that. I think the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were able to do that as a Saturday morning cartoon slash toy slash feature film from a studio trifecta. Hasbro didn't figure that out. And when we go back to the mid-2000s, uh, when Hasbro decides to enter this partnership with uh, Paramount Pictures to bring adaptations of their properties to theaters, that was the model, right? The Saturday morning cartoon to toy to major blockbuster route. And it's not an easy thing to accomplish. I mean, listen. They've really struggled with G.I. Joe, which seems like it should be a slam dunk. Like that, you would think that G.I. Joe is the easiest movie franchise to make uh, out of any of them. And they multiple times have completely bombed it. You know, they just haven't made it work. And that's despite having like some good talent, you know, you had Channing Tatum, you had The Rock, you had, you know, it's like they did that Snake Eyes movie was like the character when I was a kid, Snake Eyes was the coolest because he was like a ninja who didn't talk and he dressed in black and everybody was like, oh, I'm playing with a Snake Eyes toy. And they, they granted that movie, you know, when it hit, it hit at kind of the wrong time, but but they just, again, they didn't make it work. Well, there's, I think, also historical uh, frames of reference here on why it was hard for Hasbro to develop that property uh, in around 2007, right? Uh, namely, the U.S.'s involvement in Iraq and Afghanistan, two wars that were difficult to sell within this country and much harder to sell outside of this country. The brand of American army guy fighting, you know, super society of villains like reagan like reagan era remake of a korean war era kind of hero thing <laughs> is yeah it's, it's you know and yet i mean arguably like the fast and the furious movies are just the whole gi joe character set but kind of re you know you've seen this thing of like like this this you know the code namey character set doing a thing um you know fighting a cabal of mysterious technocratic villains or whatever it's like it's kind of the same stuff structurally speaking you were correct i mean the 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 real context around something like gi joe makes it way harder to make and sell that movie especially overseas like you know why does anybody in china want to go see a you know, G.I. Joe movie? And the answer is nobody does. And that, I think, is what leads uh, Hasbro and Paramount Pictures to develop this concept, which by all intents and purposes is a harder movie to pull off. Uh, Transformers, instead of G.I. Joe as the first collaboration, we have to get something straight here. As Russ points out, these movies are competing with theme park rides. They are about talking robots that turn into cars. That's what we're working with here. That is the context of the conversation. But I challenge anyone, write a feature film script or make a movie with that IP of just like, hey, this is a robot, turns into a car, it has to talk, you have to deliver a satisfying film 90 minutes plus based on that. That's near impossible. I don't know how you get there. So that is the challenge that we have in front of us. We have the challenge of making robot talking cars into something that you can buy and care about and feel about. Basically, the challenge that we have here is that. How do we turn this concept into a global blockbuster series? And it's not as easy as, as it seems. 
I hadn't seen a single one of these movies. I think I've, I've said several times now until very recently, I was in film school focused on other things. So watching everything now, kind of like we did with our Fast and the Furious franchise, were the same. I hadn't seen any of those movies, but you go back and you see how these global franchises are built. I think it's very telling in how audiences and how Hollywood speaks to a global audience and how that sort of evolves. For Transformers, I think just because I've got these Fast and Furious movies fresh in my mind, I think it's a different beast altogether. There are movies like Fast and the Furious that I've seen. There is a version of every Fast and the Furious movie out there that I would like better, that is different, that takes makes different creative decisions. Uh, I can imagine that movie. That's not the case with Transformers. There is no other version of Transformers that is a frame of reference. There's no other talking robot car movie. There are sci-fi movies that you can basically benchmark, but this is its own thing. So when Steven Spielberg signs on as executive producer and Michael Bay signs on as director, that teaming brings up, I think, a lot of interesting questions as moviegoers. Russ, do you remember where you were in life when this came out? Do you remember when and how you saw this? I mean, the idea of seeing a Transformers movie, which is something I had a connection to when I was young, produced by Steven Spielberg, directed by Michael Bay, someone, whether or not you like Michael Bay's movies, somebody who has a voice. I mean, Michael Bay has, he's got a style, he has a voice. You see a Michael Bay movie and it's like, oh, that is a Michael Bay movie. I know what I'm watching. And I think that brings a lot to this. I think a lot of the, a lot of the reason that these movies, especially the first couple are, are watchable is Michael Bay. You know, they look great. They look awesome. Some of this, especially the beginning of the second movie, Michael Bay's preference to shoot actual, to like film actual locations and actual things brings a lot to these movies. And it gives them weight that I think would, they would not have in the hands of other filmmakers because Bay goes and puts the camera in real places. And, and consequently, even though it's like CGI robots, um, it's still there, there, there's something to look at and there's something that like feels like it's happening. Uh, and that makes that, that gives these movies a quality that, that they wouldn't otherwise have. Now, Romeo, you watched these in high school. Do you remember the marketing campaign in France for the first Transformers? You're at the prime movie going age for this. What was the cultural context of, of this movie's release? The cultural context, well, yeah, I was 16, probably not very aware of the, the, the cultural context in my country at the time. I was probably more focused on who I was going to date and bring this this uh, this woman to the movie theater, you know, rather than the cultural context. But I do remember being, being very skeptical about watching robots and car uh, speaking. But I remember I was a huge fan of The Island. I know it's a controversial uh, movie. But I was a huge fan of this one. I remember when Transformer released in 2007, it was, like I said, it echoes a lot to my teenager souvenir. Um, I was like the same age as Shia, Shia LaBeouf at the time. And I remember the, there is one scene in Transformer, which is the every teenager's dream. Um, he's in a car with Megan Fox uh, in a tunnel. And Megan Fox is asking Shia LaBeouf why Bumblebee is transforming, transforming himself and the crappy car. Since he can transform himself in like basically everything, and Bumblebee is like so mad, they get they get Megan and Shia LaBeouf out of the car, and then Bumblebee came back with like this very nice yellow Camaro, and I was like, this is the perfect every teenager <laughs> dream. I mean, 
That was like my sequence. Listen, listen, listen. Uh, listen. I'm, I'm not. I'm not going to say that that wasn't probably part of the appeal of this movie for teenage boys. Uh, Megan Fox, Camaros, robot fights. Pretty straightforward. Do you need anything more? <laughs> yeah, and the movie leans into it. And I think let's let's go into everything behind it because the Spielberg and Michael Bay collaboration, I don't think, is as emphasized as much as in this first entry in the movie. The original Transformers film here in 2007 very much feels like two different films that are working in parallel tracks until they come together in the third act. The first movie is a big, loud, dumb Michael Bay movie. And there is no one, in my opinion, in the world that is better at making big, loud, dumb movies. Obviously, I went to high school in Miami, so Michael Bay is very much a Miami guy. And I think there's no filmmaker that embodies Miami more than the Michael Bay ethos and what he brings to his movies. That's half of the movie, right? The big robot war movie. The other half of the movie is a boy and his car and dating a girl that is way out of his league movie. That's the Spielberg movie. And that movie works really, really well as well. I think when you look at those two ingredients and how they're put together, how they're balanced in a screenplay that works very well, how Bay is able to integrate those two storylines in a way that the boy in his car and the girl out of his league movie is charming and appealing and engaging and and drives you in, really helps sell the hey, how did that car turn into a robot? And wait, it's fighting other robots part of the movie. That by the time you're in the third act, everything is clicking. The action is wonderful. The characters work. There's an appeal here that Transformers, the original in 2007, I think gets absolutely right. This franchise never gets better. It never gets that ingredient mix just as correctly as this original does. And and I think it just goes down to that. It's that Spielberg movie. It's that Michael Bay movie. And, and Russ, one of the things you, you bring up here is that there are other Steven Spielberg-produced films that are a little bit in the DNA here. You know, Spielberg was involved with Gremlins, wasn't he? Oh, yeah. You know, Spielberg, Gremlins is an Amblin movie. Spielberg was producer on Gremlins, an active one. And I mean, a lot of the first Transformers movie and even stuff in the second and third feels like gremlins with robots to me, especially yeah. looking at it now. Um, and kind of the ways in which, you know, you mentioned there's two movies, there's a boy in his car movie, and then there's the giant robots action movie. And the way those things come together is very gremlins in a way, you know, it's like, you've got the Decepticons as gremlins, you've got the Autobots as Mogwai. They're a lot bigger. They're not cuddly little teddy bear creatures, but the thinking, like the jokes and the structure of scenes and the whole approach and the blend of comedy plus like a weird fish out of water. And, uh, you know, all of those elements are very, very reminiscent of Gremlins, you know, a movie I've seen 50 times <laughs> and watching, watching Transformers again, I was like, oh God, this is this is just Gremlins, you know, with Shia LaBeouf. There are other little aspects, I think, of that Spielberg influence here as well. E.T., which is a movie about an alien coming in and you're hiding it in suburban U.S. That's that's where this movie's based. That's Shia LaBeouf, Megan Fox storyline. You get an alien car from outer space and you kind of have to hide him. You kind of have to integrate him. There's a high school bully out there. Man, that aspect of the movie, I was surprised just how well it worked. Um, and there's also a little bit of a horror tinge to the action, specifically around some of the characters. Reminded me a lot of Gremlins. Yes, a little bit of Poltergeist in the way that technology is used 
as a horror foil to the straight characters and the straight setting. So you can see that DNA of that Spielberg influence very, very much here in the original. Uh, once we get into the sequels, I think it's the Michael Bay show, which works if you know that that's coming. But I wasn't expecting a movie uh, like this one when I watched uh, the original. Let's go over the numbers here real fast before we continue talking about the film. Uh, Romeo, what did this movie open to over in July 4th weekend uh, here in North America in 2007? The movie opened uh, around $70 million uh, in the US for a domestic box office of $320 million. Not bad. Uh, global box office went up to $709 million, really off the strength of the overseas market, making $390 million. So pretty well-balanced here, a 45% market share in North America, 55% outside of North America. Once again, this is before the overseas box office goes through that revolution with digital cinema. Let's let's speak a little bit more about the movie itself. I, I think it's, as we mentioned, it's, it's a screenplay that, it, that works a lot better than I expected it to. It's a movie that is well-balanced within these storylines. Uh, I can tell you I am a huge fan of easy to the point exposition whenever you're plot is ludicrous and the idea of uh alien robot cars is just an impossible idea to sell keep your exposition light keep it simple first five minutes in this movie optimus prime in disembodied voice tells us there is a magic cube that's an earth and alien robot cars need to get the cube what is the cube no one cares it doesn't matter i, I they don't have to go into it nobody needs to know that's within the first 30 seconds of the movie. Then you have a wonderful scene in Qatar, of all countries, uh, where the U.S. Army fights uh, robot scorpions, which looked amazing. It looked like something I had never seen before. And that's something that you will hear me say again and again. And after that, we're in a high school narrative with a surprisingly charming Shia LaBeouf a breakout role from uh, from Megan Fox, uh, who hits all the right notes in in this film. Yeah, I mean, really, seven minutes in, I'm in the bag, guys. There's a cube, <laughs> there are robots, there's war, there's a charming movie. I want Shia LaBeouf and Megan Fox to get together at the end. It's a movie about a boy and his car and also giant robots fighting soldiers. How could you not be drawn into this. It's really hard to pull that off in seven minutes. Let's not forget the, the first Transformers uh, had two, two Oscar nominations also for best sound editing and best, uh, best visual effect. And I have to say the sound editing is just awesome. When you see slow-mo scene of robots fighting, uh, the sound editing is just on point and it's just, yeah, it's, uh, it's fascinating to, to watch. It's just overwhelming. Alex Kurtzman and Roberto Orti, who were guys who were TV writers, you know, um, they did, they start off on Hercules, the legendary journeys movie, a TV series, I'm sorry, uh, which, uh, important to remember produced by Sam Raimi, uh, which led to Xena, Xena warrior princess. You know, these guys were TV mainstays like genre TV mainstays for quite a while. And they wanted to break into features and they got their break rewriting the John Rogers script for transformers. And like this movie makes them, you know, they are minted as writer producers with this movie. Uh, they're involved in the sequels. Uh, and then they do the Star Trek reboot. You know, they, they branch off and do all sorts of other things. You know, they work with Spielberg to create that script that you like, like they, you know, the John Rogers draft, my understanding is that it was pretty different, it was structured differently. And Spielberg came in and was like, hey, let's do let's do the boy in his car story. And they were like, bang, love it. Great. 
And that's where all this stuff comes from. And then also, you know, Daniel, you kind of threw out a little semi-disparaging aside about Shia LaBeouf, but like, look, man, Shia's good. And honestly, Shia's worst enemy is Shia LaBeouf because I think this is somebody who was on track to be one of the most powerful and most effective actors of his generation. He is very good. He's a Disney kid. You know, he does a Disney TV series. He does that movie Holes, which is like the the closest thing to like a, a 2000s uh, Goonies reboot. Yeah, you know, Shia uh, did Disturbia, He did, which was at the time I loved it. Uh, I saw it like three times when it was out for some reason. Uh, or actually not for some reason. It played at the drive-in in Atlanta and you could just watch movies. Talked about this before. There was one night where I saw I watched Serbia twice in a row. Had a great time with it. Uh, haven't seen it in a long time. Does it hold up? I don't know. At the time, terrific stuff. And like, you know, Shia Shia had problems. Shia's problems got in his way and really did a lot to derail him. And I understand that. And it's unfortunate because he's good. Like he's a good actor. Um, and I think he's still going to be a good actor. You know, uh, I don't know if either of you guys saw that movie, the peanut butter Falcon, which he was, uh, an indie, I think it was a Sundance movie he did in 2019. It's a good movie. He's great in it. You know, it's like, he's still doing good stuff. American honey. He's good in that fury, uh, which is a movie I have some issues with. Uh, he's good in that. It's like the, He's he's a good actor, and a lot of the reason Transformers works is because of Shia LaBeouf. And this is Shia in his leading man era, right? He's also cast as Indiana Jones' son in the fourth Indiana Jones movie. There is this window where Shia LaBeouf is going to be your next leading man of this new crop of franchises. I, I agree with you, Russ, in the sense that his personal life maybe gets in the way of, of his career, but I will defend like you his career. I think his choices are really interesting. He takes decisions and he works with filmmakers. He takes roles, commits to them fully. He's not afraid of going on big movies. In 2013, in the middle of this like a Transformer st stardom, he decides to play a very, let's say, not empathetic role in Lars von Trier's Nymphomaniac <laughs> uh, <Right>. movies. <laughs> and he, he, completely uh he completely delivers in those movies he's great in them uh he keeps on taking roles that are challenging and does well in them and you're right i think the charm uh, that he brings in the first transformers works let's not forget about the charm that megan fox brings there's a reason why she is a breakout star is and yes i mean she is a very attractive person to look at in this film but she's got a personality she's got a presence she's got a chemistry i think the role is interesting enough for her to deliver here in a way that Megan Fox's career, I don't think maybe she wasn't given the roles to go there. I think that's fair to say in that I, I think a lot of people had a difficult time seeing beyond the like Maxim cover vision of Megan Fox and perhaps beyond the Michael Bay vision of, of Megan Fox, where like, to be fair, Michael Bay's camera looks at Megan Fox in only one way in these movies, you know? And in the way that a 16-year-old boy would look at. But it's the yes. whole thing about the Michael Bay School of Directing is Michael Bay looks at the world the way 16-year-old boys look at the world. And if you're a 16-year-old boy, boy, do Michael Bay movies work. And then Absolutely. when you're older, it yep. reminds you of who you were at 16. Now, of course, that's also a huge flaw. You have another half of the global population sitting through these movies going, oh, boy, 
I have to spend time with this character, but I will defend within that framework. That's why we go back to the screenplay because this screenplay in Transformers gives that role a little bit of extra depth, a little bit of extra stuff to do, to work with in a way that, right. I mean, I don't think uh, Megan Fox's career ever escaped the male gaze. Well, I mean, I think the one exception is, is, uh, Jennifer's body, you know, the horror movie coming from a Diablo Cody screenplay, uh, directed Kasama, by Karin Kasama, you know, and it's like, that's a great movie. It's a great casting for, for Megan Fox. Um, that movie works really well. And that movie has really had a resurgence over the last five years or so, you know, people who sort of, uh, dismissed it at the time have realized that Jennifer's body is, is a good movie. Beyond that, Megan Fox has not been able to really capitalize on a career in the way that, you know, maybe she would like to. I, I, I don't know. I can't assume what she wants, what she doesn't want, but it, you know, I think she's had a, a hard time moving beyond that Michael Bay and Maxim vision of who she is slash who they expect her to be. And it feels like a time capsule of these two young stars, LaBeouf and Fox, at the cusp of a stardom that ends up taking a different shape than maybe a lot of us would have assumed it would have, right? LaBeouf decides to do different things with his career. Megan Fox decides to do different things with her career. Uh, but in this movie, in this original Transformers, you've got that moment. Um, and I think that moment of them together and that chemistry they have is wonderful. And it's something the franchise always aims for after this movie, never gets to, never successfully delivers. It's a movie that the supporting cast, I think, works really well in. You've got the grumpy army guy played by John Voight. You've got John Turturro playing John Turturro, uh, but in a way that kind of works. Um, and then you've also got Rachel Taylor playing the, uh, she's an Australian actress, playing uh, some sort of super intelligent science person. She does a great job. I think her character is sorely missed in the sequels. She helps uh, drive the exposition here in a way that, that that really helps the movie keep on going and keep on flowing. In the sequels, all the lines that the Rachel Taylor character can bring in with personality end up getting shouted at you by some sort of soldier. Right. Says, what, what is that? Oh, it's a giant robot. No. In this one, at least, you have Rachel Taylor in a scene getting you through these expository moments, you know, explaining and guiding you through the plot. I, again, I think this is a... For what Transformers the concept wants to be, this is the best possible film version of that concept. And that's why I would call this a great movie. That is the context of this. The one place I want to push back on that, and this is the thing that hurts these movies, and that for me, even the first movie is not a great movie, because as soon as the Transformers are on screen and they're not fighting, I don't care. There is nothing. <laughs> that's, that's a great point. Yeah. This movie does nothing to make me interested in them as characters. And they're not, they're toys, but they never rise above being toys. You know, the, the best, one of the best decisions that was made was to bring back some of the voice actors like Peter Cullen, who voices Optimus Prime. Like the dude has been the voice of Optimus Prime for a long time. His voice is great. It's an awesome voice. And Every bit of appeal that Optimus Prime has in this movie as a character is because of Peter Cullen's voice. There's nothing in the script that gives me any reason to be even vaguely interested in this character. And as soon as it's just like Transformers talking among themselves, 
I do not care at all. I'm so bored by it. Russ, you have to stay at the end of every Transformers movie because he's doing a monologue at every I end know, yeah. of yeah. movie. <laughs> I mean, promising us the next one is going to be even more awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's so good. Other voice actors, I mean, all the, well, not all the voice actors are good, but, you know, and that just brings in a whole bunch. It's like, again, these, these are not trying to be narrative movies. So there's a lot of questions that come to mind for me that these movies are not even vaguely interested in answering. But but there are all these dialogue scenes where they're talking about like, oh, the history of the Transformers as a species. And I'm like, okay, just wait a second. Like, hold Stop. on. No, this is two hours and 47 minutes long. We don't need this right now. And I know I'm demanding something this movie does not want to provide and is not meant to provide. And I get it. And that's why ultimately these movies are not for me. But when it's just about robots... Um, they're so boring to me. Like, just stop yeah, the robots yeah. talking. I don't care. I'm not interested. And I think that's the thing that gets progressively, becomes progressively more a problem as the way that they try to sell these movies is to add more robot characters. And so ultimately, it's just more and more robot characters that I don't care about. I think that's a that's a really good uh complaint i think of these movies but to be fair the first one doesn't let you stay in these robot it doesn't linger too much that's right it doesn't linger in that i think the sequels absolutely do and you get into trouble when you try to make sense of alien robot cars when you try to make sense of that atom mythology (laughs) the first one just tells you listen there's a cube there's alien robot cars looking for the cube the good guys are called autobots the bad guys are called decepticons they're gonna fight that's what you've got. You got to find the cube. Yeah. Anything beyond that, I think, is flawed. And I think anything beyond that is part of what a lot of these big global franchises suffer from. At a certain point, mainstream cinema, big studio franchises stop being movies and start being world building, start being everything beyond a movie. And you can do that with uh, Marvel superheroes that have long backstories and like decades and decades of writers and writer rooms that you can draw from, you can't do that with toys, man. You're going to be bad at it. There's no way to pull it off. The first one knows its limits. The first one knows what you're there for and sticks to it. The sequels, once we try to turn this into the Transformers cinematic universe, that's where the entire thing falls apart. I agree with you. I don't care about a single one of the robots, but I care about the human relationships. I care about John Turturro. I care about Megan Fox. I care about Shia LaBeouf. And it's the same thing as the Jurassic Park movies, right? It's great to see the dinosaurs, but you you know you you can't really expect to get much of a connection from your engagement with a T Rex. That's the spectacle. You need to have the cast work on its own. The first Jurassic Park got that right. None of the others did, and that's why we have that franchise. I think the same thing works here. Totally, yeah. And I mean, again, like you, I love John Turturro. I hope I don't know how many kids he has. I hope these movies put them all through college and bought him like three houses, you know, or maybe he financed a weird movie with it. I don't know. I I hope that's how it went Um, because that's what uh, these things are for to a certain extent. And that's great. We all understand and accept that. And 
cool. Uh, that's, you know, John Turturro's character gets peed on by a giant robot in the first Transformers movie. He should get a house for that, you know? <laughs> Price of admission, man. That's Price it. of admission. I came to watch robots fight and a robot pee on the guy from Sal's Pizzeria. That's <laughs> what I bought a ticket for. And by the way, <laughs> I, I, I bring up that, that, uh, that do the right thing reference because it feels like there's a universe here that do the right thing and Transformers coexist where John Turturro's character from Do the Right Thing leaves Brooklyn and that pizzeria and turns into this guy. That's how I like to think of it. And I think really there's a lot of similarities in the performance there. Just, just think about it. Let's use that as a transition going into the sequel here. And there's a very uh, specific um, constraint here that the sequel deals with. We're going to go into that in a minute. The sequel released on June 24th of 2009 is Transformers Revenge of the Fallen. Romeo, could you give us the domestic opening weekend figure for this? Because this is where we see those grosses start to creep up. Yeah, exactly. Well, it opened at above $100 million in the US, exactly $109 million in the US, accumulating its box office uh, at, for the domestic market around $402 million with an international share of 52% uh, for Transformers 2. Uh, China becomes becomes the second market for uh, Transformer with this uh, iteration reaching almost 8% uh, market share with a $65 million box office. So going from um, 37 to 65, so almost double is uh, lifetime grosses in China for the second uh, for the second iteration, yeah. And that's going to be, I think, a theme of these movies, just to see how these overseas markets respond to these titles, especially as they become more available through the uh, inception of digital cinema overseas. Uh, interesting thing to bring up here, Russ, as we are as we're recording this, we're in the middle of a writer's strike. Uh, this is a movie. Hopefully we're in the middle of now. Hopefully this is not still the beginning of a writer's strike. We are all hoping we're near the end of it. Yes. Uh, but yes, we are in a writer's strike. Uh, the last major writer's strike that happened happened during the production of this film. And I think an easy way to see of how the writer's strike uh, disrupted this crop of blockbusters is just looking to see what happened with the James Bond franchise with Daniel Craig. In 2007, you have Casino Royale come out, rebooting the series, introducing a new Bond. Casino Royale may be the best Bond movie ever made. It's If it's not the best, it's in the top three. Absolutely. Yeah. It reinvigorates the franchise. It's a movie that does everything it wants to perfectly well. I'm speaking of it in very similar terms in the way that I speak about Transformers, released in 2007. The sequel, Quantum of Solace, in 2009, suffers from uh, not having uh, writers available to work on the script, to help tweak the script. And I would argue so is the first Transformers sequel, a sequel that I think suffers from a lot of the issues that Quantum of Solace suffers from. Uh, you don't have writers to help bring these characters that you really connected with in the first movie to help develop them. Um, Everything just seems to be in service to robots fighting, which is fine. That's what we pay money to see. That's okay. But it's a different movie altogether. And as you mentioned, Russ, this movie, when it just relies on robots telling you robot mythology that was made up on the spot and telling bad jokes to each other, that's when these movies feel long. That's when these movies don't work. And I think that's the major flaw here in the first Transformers sequel. Uh, Megan Fox is back, but um, 
Not for long. Not really integrated in the script at all. Uh, Shia LaBeouf is still, I think, the central character here. Josh Duhamel is back uh, as the army guy from the first movie. But again, these characters were, I think, had stakes in the first film. Those stakes aren't here. Josh Duhamel's character as the soldier in the first five minutes of Transformers 1, you know that he has a new baby girl and he has to fight this foreign war. 2007, a US soldier fighting a foreign war that he shouldn't be fighting to go back to his family. Dude, that works very obviously and that works and grounds your character in a very simple way. Uh, the story of a boy in his car with Shia LaBeouf, with a relationship with Megan Fox, that works. None of that is here. They're just characters saying things to lead to the next big action sequence. The action sequences work, but the movie loses its heart in the human characters and the robot characters can't make up for it. Certainly not during a writer's strike. Yeah, I came back to see the second one and uh, again, uh, very overwhelmed by the number of explosions. But I, run, I wanted to bring a fun fact and I'm very surprised that this is a Frenchman that bringing this fun fact, but Transformer, the sequel, is the very first movie to announce the election of Barack Obama. I don't, I don't know what you guys want to do with that information, but I do think it's important. <laughs> <laughs> that, no, but that's an interesting point, Romeo, in that this movie, rather than giving us um, you know, fake made-up countries or maybe like an alternate universe precedent, they go to lengths to bring in actual people from US media, actual politicians, bring in actual countries. It helps ground, I guess, the action of this ridiculous concept a little bit more. The sequel here is set in college. Uh, you've got Isabel Lucas playing uh, a model uh, that is introduced as a romantic rival to Megan Fox's character um, that turns into, and I didn't know this, um, she turns into a hot girl transformer that wants to kill you. And there's some body horror elements in this movie where the movie just goes in so many different directions. So you've got a hot girl Terminator transformer played by Isabel Lucas Shia LaBeouf gets haunted by the ghost of Transformers. So there's like I a guess. horror movie where he's seeing visions. There's a college plot where he's in a he's in college. What, what's going on here, Romeo? What's going on? Are we getting ahead of ourselves? Guys, let's go back. Uh, a Transformer transform into a human shape. So how on earth they didn't do that for the first one? I mean... <laughs> the whole time turn every transformers into isabel lucas to go like honeypot every like stupid man out there it's a 37 minute movie you'll get that cuban no time this you know this again this is what i'm talking about where you can't ask questions about how or why the transformers do these things because there's no answer unless the answer is specifically in service of the plot that the movie in question is trying to drive and then the sequel will totally disregard that and be like, you know, every time they do one of these movies, they establish some stuff and then the next movie rewrites it or disregards it. And in a way, that's fine. I don't care. Like, I've said this before on this podcast. I'll say it until I die. I don't care about some perfect narrative cohesion. You know, if it works, it works. I think the problems are, as we've talked about, there are parts of these movies that don't work. And so... I just sit there and ask all of these questions. If the movie works, then it's like, who cares? It doesn't matter. Just like run with it. There's so many moments in this movie where it tries to be a comedy. It tries to be a horror movie. There's a Terminator movie hiding in the background of this. There's a Gremlin sequel hiding in the background of this movie. I just don't know what it wants to do. Just give me the meat and potatoes, Michael Bay. I know you can do sweet, sweet robot action. Just give me that. That's fine. 
Whenever you try to do more, it doesn't work, especially when you don't have writers behind it. That's what happens in the sequel. This sequel, I think, hurts the franchise. I a think lot. the fact that, yeah, a, a lot. I think the fact that you lose the Rachel Taylor character that helps you get out of narrative problems very easily in the first movie, she's completely written out of this movie. That's a huge loss because all of a sudden you have to have more, more explanatory dialogue from characters that don't really, it doesn't really work very well. Uh, you have more moments between robots talking to each other, cracking jokes and funny voices. That's not what I'm here to watch. Nope. I will defend moments like the robot honeypot scene when a supermodel that is impossibly out of the League of Shia LaBeouf uh, tries to seduce and kill him. That looks awesome. That's great. Give me more honeypot killer robots. I want that. I want to see robots fighting humans. I don't want to see jokes. I don't know. This movie sucked. This movie was awful. The audience, uh, the audience uh, felt the same way at the time because the first one had a great audience score of 85% and dive to 57% for the second one. So it's the start, it's the start of the disappointment for the audience. So let's not talk about this horrible movie any more than we have to. It made a bunch of money. Um, it was actually the number one film uh, domestically of 2009. It was the number one film uh, in the domestic uh, franchise here for Transformers. It ended up making, as Romeo said, over $400 million. That's the hype nationally. Internationally, however, this turns into a whole other ballgame with the third entry in the series, Transformers Dark of the Moon, released in June 29th, 2011. Once again, July 4th weekend. Uh, Romeo, what are the financials here? What's the opening weekend? What, what's the market share? How does this play out for audiences? Yeah, so the, the opening weekend was a bit less than uh, than the than the second one with a hundred million dollar shy, um, and uh, the domestic box office went to uh, three hundred and fifty two million. But this is the very first Transformer movie to cross the billion dollar threshold with a um, billion and hundred twenty three million dollar worldwide. Um, so with a, almost seventy percent of its box office outside of the US. So that's definitely the start of a story for overseas box office for the, the Transformer franchise. And China represents almost 15%, going from $65 million for the second one to more than $165 million for the third one. Now, we were talking about how the writer's strike and the bad script, I think, really derails a lot of the characters, a lot of the heart in this franchise, maybe takes some of that potential away. How a similar thing happens to the James Bond series. Now, the difference here is that for the third installment of the James Bond series, uh, the Bond producers bring in Sam Mendes to helm Skyfall. And Skyfall, by every metric, I think, overperforms in expectations, uh, both financial and narrative-wise, uh, in that series. This third installment in the Transformers franchise gets as close to that as possible, but doesn't quite land it. This is the last one that that I really liked, and I, I did really like it, but all the issues uh, in the sequel are still here. The action works better. I think the scope is grand. We'll get into this uh, in a second. But Russ, do you remember watching this on the on the Paramount blog? I was kind of excited for this movie because they, you know, there's this whole conspiracy theory aspect of it. Like, oh, the, you know, the the moon landing was actually, you know, a secret mission to investigate a craft that had crash landed on the dark side of the moon and blah, blah, blah. And so I was like, oh, okay, that's kind of fun. Uh, you know, we're, we're just way in the weeds when it comes to like caring or not caring about like 
story and continuity. And indeed, I think this movie really carries forward like what would you know the like you said it's like the problems from the writer's strike movie which are that there's just total disassociation between scenes and here it's almost like an art movie it's almost an experimental movie in the way that it just like does whatever the hell it wants um so i do remember seeing it i remember the press screening and being kind of looking forward to it and ultimately the, this one doesn't uh, work for me any better really than than the previous one did you know it's nice to have like it's a bummer that megan fox has gone backstage uh you know uh comments and feuding and politics meant that megan fox was out which is too bad well that's that's i think the the main issue that the writers have to contend with in this third part of the franchise where the first part works really because of the human characters there josh duhamel is given these human stakes of being a family man, having go back to his family. John Turturro is your comic relief, and he's like the super secret uh, funny guy working in a back room in the government. And then you've got that romantic pairing between two great young actors like Megan Fox and Shia LaBeouf that just seem fresh and happy and look great on screen. You lose all of that development in the sequel. So when you go into this third part of the trilogy at this point, where these characters have to pay off an emotional journey, you've lost an entire two hours of running time from the sequel. And then you've already lost Megan Fox, and you have to rework that character and recast that character with Rosie Huntington, who does a good job, but it's a new character. And all of a sudden, now you have to do the heavy lifting of explaining very vaguely what happened to the Megan Fox character, which is a huge part of the first two movies. And then just grounding the stakes of this movie between Shia's relationship and his new girlfriend, uh, another supermodel that this character ends up punching well, well above his weight. <laughs> To, uh, to get with um god bless him um you have to sort of kind of explain that relationship and develop it it doesn't have the running time to do it when you're balancing robots fighting each other it's really hard to tell that third installment uh in character development with with these issues working against it i think ultimately what this movie had to do to work and i hate to say this because she was great in the first movie you have to karate kid too megan fox in the sequel in the first 10 minutes nobody would ask themselves why first 10 minutes of the second transformers movie do what daniel larusso does in karate kid part two this girl was way out of my league and she dumped me for a soccer player and you don't ask any more questions you're like you know what elizabeth shoe is way out of your league that makes perfect sense to me if, she, if Megan Fox doesn't do enough in the sequel, you should have written her out. I'm sorry, but she just, she's not given enough of a character to be in that second movie. So by the time you get to the third one, you can reestablish something. Again, I think narrative lessons from the Karate Kid trilogy. There's a lot you can take. Uh, very underrated films. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. <laughs> but let's go into, I think, what, what works here. Of course, we, we are complaining about character development and motivation. That is not the reason why anybody watches these movies. And that is definitely not the reason why these movies are billion-dollar earners, starting with this one. Guys, this is where Michael Bay's career peaks. He has never directed action that looks better than this. Uh, so I'm, I'm watching all of these movies over the weekend and uh, my wife is, is walking around just having to contend with the noise from the television. And she keeps on coming up to me and goes, 
Daniel, you keep on saying, wow, awesome. <laughs> like, you, you keep on doing this. I just hear explosions and you just yell out, wow, awesome, or like, cool. I, I reacted viscerally to this movie so many times. That's hard to pull off, guys. I came in very jaded to these movies. But if I keep on ex- like reacting this way from watching it at home, it means it's working at a very simple level. And yeah, I mean, the action set pieces are incredible. I've never seen a big uh, a big dumb action movie taking place in a city, a big battle, like I see in the third act, uh, the hour-long third act of uh, Transformers Dark of the Moon, where you have Autobots and Decepticons and army guys fighting in downtown Chicago, just wrecking Trump Tower. Um, it's so entertaining. There's like... A vagina tentata robot worm that like crushes buildings that is awesome to look at. I loved every second of this. It looks great. The effects still hold up today. Um, I, I don't. Mean, I don't yell out "Wow, awesome!" when I watch Marvel movies. By the way, only no, well, when I watch something like this. I mean, Marvel movies don't shoot on location in Chicago. Certainly not anymore. Um, and even at the time, Bay doing this, all this filming, all the location work in Chicago, and just having like explosions on the streets. It was notable then. It was a big deal. It wasn't like, oh, people do this all the time. It was a big deal that Bay was doing all of that location work. Um, And it certainly pays off. I mean, I think this movie looks good. Uh, I think there's not a whole lot that looks like this movie. And certainly now when you see, like, I think the only people, I'm going to eat these words later, but in my mind, without researching it, the only things that come close to this or that exceed it in terms of like looking like this, this action location shooting, you know, uh, on this scale are uh, Fury Road, uh, which Rosie Huntington-Whiteley yeah. went off to film just after this movie came out. Um, and then some of Chris Nolan's movies, you know, Nolan does that location work uh, in the same way that Bay is. And it's almost like they're. You know, it's probably a, an exaggeration to say that like Nolan and Bay are like Beatles and Beach Boysing each other at this point, where they're like trying to outdo. I think that's fair. Yeah, it works. You know what? I'll bring in another movie. I think uh, there's some James Cameron in this. There oh, are sure. sequences yeah. here that remind me of True Lies. This is that third act. You know, in Chicago, once you see this wonderful spectacle of robots, I'd never seen something like that before, and I haven't seen a third act like that executed anywhere nearly as well in any Hollywood blockbuster. This nails it. This is, I think, the best example of how you pull off this sort of spectacle. Unfortunately. Because you don't have that second movie to tweak your characters, to help out the motivations, there is no emotional payoff at the end. The emotional payoff here is structured to be the Rosie Huntington-Whitley character and Shia LaBeouf coming together. That's supposed to be how this trilogy ends. It would have worked with a Megan Fox character who has like a chip on her shoulder in the first movie. And she's interesting to spend time with. In the third one, Rosie Huntington-Whitley's character is just a damsel in distress. She's the hot girl to fight over with like the tech billionaire. She's just, you know, and we, we, we hear these complaints a lot, but she is, I think, such a retrograde character and she's just the trophy that you have to protect, that you have to win. She's almost a MacGuffin, you know? <laughs> it's like... Yeah, and, and it, it really doesn't work. The character just not- does not work. 
Yeah. And that's not her fault as an actor. It's the way it's no, written. Not at all. But, you know, the writing does not support her, doesn't give her anything to do. There were a lot of complaints that she's not very good in the movie. And it's like, well, look at the material she's got. Uh, she's not given really anything to work with. But when we stick to the spectacle, guys, again, this movie, that third act of this movie gives me the feeling that James Cameron movies give me. I've never seen this before. No one can do this this well. And this is, I really do think when we look back at Michael Bay's filmography, there's movies I like better. Of course, we will talk about Pain and Gain in a second. I love The Rock. There's movies I think that work better standalone movies. But in terms of sequences, this is the best Michael Bay I think has ever been doing Michael Bay. Russ, earlier when talking about this movie, you mentioned the supporting cast that works really, really well here. Uh, you've got Francis McDormand, John Malkovich, John Turturro is back. They basically got a Coen Brothers movie. Kind of put robots yeah. in it. <laughs> yeah, totally. um, and you know what? The Cohen the Cohen Brothers ensemble is wonderful. They really give this movie a lot of punch and personality. Uh, that I think, yeah, it's charming. It's just a pity again that the second installment just didn't work. That you lose Megan Fox, you lose her character um, to the point where it's just you don't get that weight of the final moment that the original trilogy should close out with. And I do call it an original trilogy because the first three movies in this franchise feel like a self-enclosed trio with a beginning, really bad middle, and decently good end. That would have been perfect, I think, to go out on. I think Michael Bay probably thought it was going to be three movies of his life. I think Bay even explicitly said he was not going to do a fourth movie, and then for whatever reason he did. But yeah, I think I think when Dark of the Moon is is coming out, I think that he's like, yeah, I'm done. You know, I did three of these you know, we're good. Hand wiping gesture. Uh, let's go do something else. But of course, this movie makes a billion dollars worldwide. And if there is a guarantee in life in Hollywood is if you make a billion dollar movie, there is going to be a sequel. Sorry, that's just what's going to happen. Now, uh, they do, Paramount does convince Michael Bay to come back for the fourth entry in this franchise, but they do a one for me, one for you trade-off with uh, a movie that I think we all like very much, Pain and Gain, mm -hmm. uh, oh, yes. against Miami. Probably the most iconic Miami movie uh, ever made based on a wonderful, wonderful source material. Great article from the Miami New Times titled Pain and Gain that I very much... Uh, encourage everyone to read i think it's a great movie it brings together mark Wahlberg and the rock dwayne johnson in roles that are interesting or challenging and then when transformers gets a soft reboot with its original director michael bay in transformers age of extension which comes out over july 4th weekend in 2014 it comes with a new star now i don't know how you guys feel it ends up being mark Wahlberg, but honestly would this movie have worked better with The Rock? I don't know. It feels like a toss-up. Uh, you lose Shia LaBeouf, you're going to bring in a Franchise Viagra. You better bring in the <laughs> Franchise Viagra himself, because I'm not sure Marky Mark pulls this off. Um, let's start with financials, and we'll go into the movie. Romeo, how does this perform at the box office? Well, very similar to the to the third one. So again, crossing the billion dollar um, uh, the billion dollar threshold accumulated at the global box office one billion and one hundred and four million dollar. It opened at a uh, hundred and million dollar in the US. Quite similar as the second one and the third one also, uh, but we're still observing a decrease. Um, in terms of box office for English-speaking territories. And in the, for the first one, this is the very first time China becomes the first 
country for uh, for the franchise, reaching almost 30% of the global box office from China with $301 million. Crazy, crazy. Russia still strong with $45 million, second market after the domestic market with $245 million. Yeah, big, uh, big shift here in the overseas box office that keeps on rising and rising. You make a fourth installment after the prior one makes a billion dollars. This one also makes $1.1 billion. But yes, you mentioned uh, for those people that can understand the dialogue without subtitles, uh, it's <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, it is not working. Russ, wh- how did you feel about uh, Transformers: Age of Extinction? Didn't like it. There we go. Yeah. I don't think anyone did. Um, That's uh, everything. That's <laughs> all I got for you here. That's all I got. I mean, you, you have to save yourself, uh, Russ, because the next one is the worst uh, in terms of urgent score. Okay. <laughs> Well, well, I didn't see the next, next one. Video. The next, I didn't oh, see the next dude. one because I was like, I'm, I'm out, I'm done. Uh, yeah, you know, you, you did well. Uh, the one that comes after this is one of the worst movies I've seen in my life. Uh, this one's not far from it. So this is what happens in uh, Transformers: Age of Extinction. You end up finishing off that trilogy storyline with Shia LaBeouf and those human stakes. Uh, you try to reboot everything in a post-war torn Chicago uh, narrative universe here. For whatever reason, there are still robots throwing tech McGuffins at you. Is it a sword? Is it a laser? Is it a, you know, I don't know, sandals? I don't know what they're looking for, but they're looking for it and they have to fight. That's fine. Uh, Don't spend too much time talking about it. Uh, The longer you spend explaining the plot, uh, the worse it will be for everyone involved. They spend way, way too much time giving you robot alien mythology. But there are things that work in this movie. First off, uh, we go back to the human stakes. Uh, Marky Mark Wahlberg plays a... Texas mechanic with a Boston accent. Uh, Don't ask questions. That's fine. Um, Everyone's watching this uh, is reading subtitles anyway. Um, He's got a supermodel daughter that is dating an Irish race car driver. I didn't know there were too many Irish race car drivers. Sure. Why not? Uh, TJ Miller is there playing an out-of-work mechanic that gets killed off. Spoiler alert, who cares? He gets killed off like 40 minutes into this movie and like no one cares. He gets like burned alive and everyone's like, ah, kind of sucks for TJ Miller. So it's like the real world. I think what the movie tries to do is ground this new iteration of the franchise with Mark Wahlberg's relationship with his daughter played by Nicola Peltz. It ends up being kind of boring and doesn't really go anywhere to the point that the daughter character gets written off of the next installment in this franchise. None of the human characters work. I do remember just thinking that everything, like they kind of do, they they try to structure this kind of like, uh, you know, coming of age comedy triangle thing with the with Wahlberg's character and his daughter and her, her boyfriend. And I just remember all of the scenes between them being weird and creepy and the stuff with like trying to negotiate, is it okay if like the boyfriend and the daughter have sex or I was like, no, Oh no, none of this. Get all of this out of this movie. There's a whole subplot here about like um, the daughter being 17 years old and the boyfriend being 20. 
and like age of consent in the stage of Texas. Right. You don't need yes. to get into that, man. Yeah. It's a movie about robots fighting. We can go into age of consent in another film. Uh, it could be called age of here. consent, you know, so all, you, all that, you know, like transformers <laughs> colon age of consent. <laughs> Very different movie from Transformers colon Age of Extinction, which is the title of this movie. I don't know if we even mentioned it. Um, but yeah, that's literally, that's the thing I remember about this movie is is all of that stuff and me just being like, no, don't want. No, way, way, yeah. It, doesn't, it, it makes you want the robot characters to come back. Can the robots talk more? that's how bad this movie is that's how terrible this movie is there's also you get into the like the obscene product placement part of the transformers universe which is always it's part of it from the beginning you know yeah and you know what honestly if if a bud light scene is going to bankroll a great third act like we had in the third one i don't care that's fine happens all the time straight yeah. Drink all the Bud Light your little heart desires. I have no issue. But if you're going to spend like seven minutes on Bud Light commercials for a pretty crappy movie, that's where I'm like, come on, man. E, e, spend it spend it a little better way. Uh, supporting cast kind of works here. TJ Miller does his thing. Uh, he works, you know, for the 40 minutes he's there. Kelsey Grammer is a bad guy um, and is actually pretty good. Nice idea. Bad guy yeah, here. sure. Yeah, no, it, it worked really well. Um You've got Stanley Tucci here as well, uh, playing a morally compromised like tech guy. He's also great. Everybody likes Stanley Tucci. Again, when it gets to like the casting and bringing in interesting character actors to like fill out your movie, this movie works really well. Uh, but uh, as we were saying earlier, maybe spend less time in robots talking about their super secret alien mythology and Irish race car drivers talking about uh, <laughs> sleeping with underage models. Those are that's not the movie I want to watch. Um, ultimately, the movie I do want to watch um, is less good as the other ones. Uh, action still works. A uh, big part of this movie is set in China. Of course, there's a reason for that. Romeo went into it. The Chinese box office is booming. This is a massive, massive franchise in China. It gets to the point, uh, this is how cynical this is, that um, there are speaking roles in this film that there was a Chinese reality show uh, <laughs> that just played in the country where the winner of this Chinese reality show got to have a speaking walk-on role in the Transformers in the sequel, in Age of Extinction. That's where we are in the Transformers universe. You're servicing things that are beyond a movie, that are beyond a storyline, and it is a movie that doesn't work for those reasons. That Chinese aspect is something that is worth maybe going into a little more detail about because that's the thing we saw in a lot of movies in this time. There was a period of about four years where any movie with a budget like over $100 million, you could virtually guarantee was going to have like a scene egregiously set in China. Um, you know, occasionally a movie would even reach the level of like virtually being a Chinese America co-production. Um, and in some of it now, just like, it's, it's, it's not hard to watch, just weird to watch some of those films, even a movie like the Martian, which is a movie. Yeah, I that's adore. probably, I love that movie to death, but then the whole the, all the China thing just seems very consciously like let's make this movie able to play in China. And some of that was just to get around 
Chinese laws about the distribution distribution of movies that were not made in China. Um, and so like you're courting Chinese audiences with, with characters and scenes that are set in China, but you're also specifically courting the Chinese government to let you put your movie in theaters without being subject to regulations that limit your box office potential. And this is the prime era for studios being like, oh, okay, well, I guess we'll set a whole act of the movie in China because that's how we can get access to that box office. You know what? I don't have an issue with saying, hey, listen, this is the top global market for this movie. Like China is the top global market for movies like this. Why don't we shoot there? Why don't we make a movie that audiences from this country will like? I get that. I support that all the way. I love it. When it gets cynical and kind of weird, and I think The Martian is the best example, is when you're just having characters say monologues that are clearly set up to yeah. impress a foreign government's yeah. officials. There's pr- a propaganda like, aspect I, that's c- kind of sketchy. I, I don't know. Whatever punk rock teenager I have left inside me is still like, <laughs> go Buñuel Viridiana and just like a, a big F you to like the Francoist Spain censors. I like that. I like when you insult government censors, not when you kowtow to them. It it's It doesn't work in a single one of the movies that does it. No, I mean, you know, we're we're talking about this though, of course, in the context of Transformers movies, which are like right, you right. Know, they're, are we? they're perfectly yeah. happy to be US military propaganda. They're perfectly happy to be propaganda for General Motors. So what's the where's the line between also throwing in like a little, you know, a, a couple of, you know, big ups to China? It's just so egregious. It feels very shoehorned in, and it's not limited to this movie. There's a bunch of them, right? Uh, and and it's and now that that era has kind of passed, um, it feels even more glaring when you look at some of these movies now. There's a way to do it effectively. You, the way you don't do it effectively is by raffling away speaking roles in your film. That is how that is how you turn this into a cynical enterprise. So yeah, I think you're right. There is a way to do it. Uh, it, it isn't this. Uh, but be, you know, beyond that, I don't want to turn this into a whole like, oh no, uh, American blockbusters aren't made for Americans anymore. Newsflash, they never were. No, no, yeah. It's good that you make globally, <laughs> totally. globally appealing films. There is nothing wrong for making movies that appeal to foreign audiences. Uh, but yeah, it's just, uh, the way you go about it, uh, maybe pay a little bit more attention to it because it did not work here. But who cares? I mean, billion dollar movie <laughs> made a bunch of movie in China. This is the top grossing movie in the franchise in China. I wonder why. Um, it did great. Uh, I don't think there was much of a story left. I think, as Romeo mentioned, the English speaking territories are coming out less and less for these movies. But as we said before, if you make a billion dollars at the box office, you got to bring another one in there. And I don't know how they did it, uh, but they brought in Michael Bay for the fifth and undoubtedly worst, in the conversation, I think, of the worst movies ever made, Transformers, (laughs) The Last Night, released on June 21st, 2017. Romeo, what are the financials here? Because this is where everything goes off the rails. Oh yeah, this is where the big dive starts, definitely. Um, so the fifth one, Transformer the Last Night, uh, reached $605 million at the global box office. So going from $1.1 billion to $605 million, big, big dive. Uh, opening in the US was $40 million. So again, going from 100 
to 40. And the domestic box office was 130. So going from 255 to 130. Uh, regarding um, overseas, um, overseas figure, China still first, but down. So down from 301 to 228, but reaching almost 40% of the market share for uh, this uh, Transformers movie on the international scene. So, and the big drop also coming from Russia, uh, going from um, going from forty five million to fifteen only. Yeah, I mean it's a movie that that audiences just don't sign up to in the same way. Not only here domestically, as you mentioned, you go from making two hundred and forty five million domestically down to one hundred and thirty million domestically. You go from overseas making eight hundred and fifty eight million down to four hundred and seventy five. If the last two movies in this franchise make one point one billion and this one makes six hundred and five million. Yeah, you're going to get worried. And I think after this movie comes out, Paramount takes a long, long, hard look at what their plans are, at how they're going to keep on approaching this concept in the future. But let's go into the movie that completely derailed the Michael Bay universe of Transformers movies. I did not watch this one because I was like, wait a second, there's like Transformers and Merlin and uh, this is like a soap opera one, right? Because doesn't Optimus Prime become a bad guy? Yes. And yes, that happens. He's brainwashed. He's robot brainwashed by another robot um, to be a bad guy called Nemesis Prime for a good like hour of the movie. Which uh, on paper I love, but then in reality you get back to that my my point from you know, a while ago, which is just, I don't want to hear the robots talking. And those two things don't really go together very well. Yeah. Uh, Romeo, do you remember where you saw this movie? When you saw this movie? I mean, you're working in the film industry at this point, right? Or are you at Sony or Universal in France? I was at Universal Picture, so I was more focused on the Universal lineup, but... Well, you were competing against this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we were competing, but I I remember I really wanted to watch this movie only because in the previous iteration, they introduced Dinobots. So I was like, I just want Dinobots again. So I went I went to see it, but honestly, yeah, no. Uh, I don't think I, I remember a single piece from that moment when I've seen in theater. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, a, a, a very forgettable movie. I think there's a chance uh, you guys might have seen it uh, and just have forgotten about it. Uh, there is... <laughs> A very high likelihood that it happened. I'm just going to rattle through this because the less we talk about this awful thing, the better. Um, It starts with a very promising opening sequence where it looks like we're watching Michael Bay doing a medieval war film. And I'm thinking, awesome. I'm going to watch this movie called Transformers The Last Night. And there's going to be knights and there's going to be medieval battles and like robot horses. I don't know what wonderful treats are in store for me. But they abandoned that maybe 10 minutes in. They just that, that movie starts and ends within 10 minutes. Uh, Stanley Tucci comes back playing Merlin uh, in painfully unfunny sequences uh, that really lead nowhere. Apparently, Excalibur, King Arthur Sword, is something that robots created, or, or maybe they want. I don't know. It doesn't matter. They're trying to get some sort of weird uh, medieval technology. Anthony Hopkins is here. 
uh, playing Anthony Hopkins. Uh, they kill him <laughs> off like an hour and a half in. It was actually kind of cool. Uh, again, spoilers, who cares? If, if you care, get a life. Uh, 90 minutes into this thing, uh, there's a battle sequence set in Stonehenge where like Transformers blast Anthony Hopkins into smithereens. It's impossible not to start laughing when you see that. Uh, you get to a point where these movies have robots that are clear callbacks to Star Wars. Mm, there is totally. an R2-D2 ripoff. There's a CP3O ripoff. Uh, they tell jokes. The jokes aren't funny. There's also a plot line here in the first hour where there's a bunch of children in war-torn Chicago looking for spare parts, helping Mark Wahlberg, I don't know, repair robots. Uh, they get thrown away about an hour into this movie. You don't really hear about them anymore. Uh, there's jumping, there's explosions, there's bad dialogue. There's a couple of robots that reminded me of the ED-209 from Robocop. Mm. They show up on the screen for about a minute and a half and then disappear again. I was kind of disappointed with that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know where to go with this. Uh, it sucks in, in every conceivable way. Every line in this movie tries to universe build. Every scene is in service of creating a spinoff on a character or setting you up on a sequel or a prequel, and between that, you've got Bud Light product placement um, and undeveloped female characters. Um, Josh Duhamel comes back. John Turturro comes back. Inexplicably, if you bring in characters from those movies and you don't bring either Megan Fox or Shia LaBeouf, it kind of feels incomplete. Uh, why even go through the trouble? Um, they don't. Maybe they tried. Who cares? Really, just a, 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 an abysmal film. People don't really go back to watch it in the same numbers. Paramount at this point is a studio that is not looking too great. All the IPs that they had in the late aughts, they don't forget they had the Iron Man movies. They well, no they distributed. The yeah, I mean, they were, yeah, Paramount. Yeah. And that's the thing. This movie is made when the Marvel Cinematic Universe is really going. Right. And everybody yeah. is trying to make that. And clearly Hasbro and Paramount see Transformers as their potential Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, and so you can kind of understand why they're doing all this world building, but it, they, they're clearly missing the point. Um, and yeah, they've had, you know, they had distribution of Marvel movies, which which they lost. Ultimately, uh, they've got the mission movies, but those take forever to make. Um, those are not quick productions. They're not really getting Star Trek off the ground. They've had a Star Trek reboot that people like, but Star Trek as a cinematic exercise is all but, I, th I think at this point, like, is there is Star Trek Beyond already out when this movie comes out? I genuinely don't remember. But I mean, the, the Star Trek reboot universe that was set in motion by Kurtzman and Orsi, the guys who who ultimately wrote uh, first Transformers movie that is all but stalled. Yeah, Paramount's really trying to figure out what to do. And the Hasbro partnership just isn't working, guys. You have a couple of GI Joe movies that get released between 2009 and 2013. That doesn't work at all. Uh, they have to abandon that again. A ready-made franchise. Uh, you give a little bit of time uh, after the onset of that Afghanistan Iraq War to try to launch it. Guess what? <laughs> It's really hard to sell U.S. Army guy movies overseas unless you're Tom Cruise fighting vague fighter pilots from a country that nobody knows about. <laughs> um, you try to launch Battleship in 2012 based on a board game 
uh, that doesn't work at all. I mean, really, this big partnership is just Transformers. That's what Paramount has right now. Other properties, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles gets rebooted. That doesn't work either. Paramount is really, really struggling to have a compelling IP to compete against the Disney's and universals of the world. They go all in on Transformers. And I think it gets mismanaged because they get ahead of themselves. They try to make this cinematic universe in a movie that's just like way, way, way past its prime. It doesn't work at all. They don't have that central character hook. Uh, you know, you've got you've got Mark Wahlberg's character coming back, but I don't know that anybody cares about that character. And his daughter, the daughter character is not even in this, right? Written out, written out entirely. Those are the stakes in Age of Extinction. Like the central human relationship is Mark Wahlberg and his apparently sexually available 17-year-old underage daughter that he has to protect from Irish race car drivers. <laughs> you just abandon that entirely yeah. in this one. And that's granted, I mean, I mean, we were calling it, we were calling it surplus right. in, when we talked about the last movie. That's fine, but then you have nothing left. It's just Mark Wahlberg running around with a sword. Yeah, you don't replace it with anything. And 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 I mean, as we've discussed here, these movies really do hinge on having some kind of character relationship at the center of them. Like that's what they that that's the axis on which these movies turn and if this movie doesn't even have that then like you know yeah what have you got there's nothing left of the spielberg influence this is michael bay at his worst i don't think he'll make a, i mean pearl harbor was awful but but this is just um abysmal uh i don't use the, the word object to describe too many films i will use it to describe this one uh, the less talked about this uh, abomination, the better. It, it derails a franchise. It's a franchise killer. That's that's what this is. It is a franchise killer. Paramount needs to go back to the drawing board and figure out how you revive this. And they actually, to their credit, uh, pull something off that is, I think, overperformed in, in, in every way, shape, and form, but not at the box office. Of course, after this movie, Paramount decides to go with a spinoff based on the Bumblebee robot, which uh, you mentioned, Russ, throughout five Transformers movies, you don't really build a connection to any of the robot characters. You do with Bumblebee. Bumblebee's Bumblebee the is closest. the one exception. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. the one thing you got going on for you. And they decide to take everything that worked in the Spielberg half of the first Transformers movie and expand on it in the 2018 release Bumblebee. A uh, spinoff starring uh, Haley Steinfeld. Also a Coen Brothers veteran, you know, made her, you know, her first big role is in the, their Coen remake of True Grit. Yeah, uh, she was great in that. Uh, she's great in this. And this movie decides to get a divorce from the Michael Bay-ness of these movies, which is fine. I think he peaked with the third one. You get two extra ones just in case <laughs> you wanted to get more of that. I think after five, both Michael Bay and everybody else is ready to move on. It's good that that happened. Um, and you've got Travis Knight, who is a filmmaker. Well, how could we, how would you describe Travis Knight <laughs> and his trajectory, Russ? Well, it depends on. Because he's not your first choice, right? He's not. But Travis Knight is interesting because how you describe him, uh, you could describe him in a couple of ways. I mean, he's the son of the co founder of Nike. So Travis Knight does not come from nothing, <laughs> you know? But on the other hand, Travis Knight is also um, the founder or co-founder and one of the main animators at the stop motion studio Leica, which 
has made wonderful movies. Like, and they make them in a way that is amazing. But he had wanted to make a transition into live action for a while. I think there was maybe a point where he was looking at one of the Deadpool movies or, you know, there were some places where it was like, oh, what's he, what's his live action debut going to be? And it ends up being Bumblebee, which as you say, is kind of a weird thing because it's, it's a prequel to the 2007 movie. Um, and it's kind of a remake of it as well, because it takes the, the boy in his car part and makes it a girl in his car and it's the same car. Um, and, but then they also get to throw in some 80s nostalgia with a lot of music. You know, the Haley Steinfeld character is super into music. I don't know. I think this movie about two thirds works. Yeah, I think it's a good reset. Um, unfortunately, the box office doesn't really help this movie in terms of we're always going to speak about it in context to the other Transformers movies. I always insist that it's an unfair comparison when we bring in spinoffs, especially a spinoff that is very far away from what the Michael Bay Transformers movies did. This tries very consciously to be a very different Transformers movie. Romeo, what are the numbers for Bumblebee released in uh, December of 2018? I like what you said, Daniel, about the context, because we need to highlight that the distribution uh, plan for Bumblebee, especially for the domestic market, was clearly not the same um, compared to the previous iteration that were above every movie before that from the Transformer franchise were above 4,000 locations in the U.S. And Bumblebee yeah. opened... July 4th weekend, big holiday yeah. weekend, big summer movie. This is released in December. December. How wide was that release here domestically? 3,500 uh, locations. So it's 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 a it's a it's a notable drop compared to the to the to the previous iteration. And regarding box office, uh, the dives continue, but we, st- I, I have to say, I still see some sparkles. Sorry, some old spark somewhere. <laughs> Sorry for the bad joke. It opened in the U.S. above twenty million dollars. Um, continue his um, career and ends around 130, 127 million dollars in the U.S. exactly, with an international market share of 73 percent, grossing almost half a billion, 467. So the dives, like I said, continue going from 605 to 467. Um, China is still the first country with 36 percent uh, market share, but a decrease again going from 228 for the last Transformers to 170 million dollars for Bumblebee. Um, but when I see when I said I see some sparkles somewhere, for instance, unit um, the UK increased uh, the box office for for this one. So, and let's not forget that this one and the first Transformer is the best audience. Well, is the best um, audience score. They have the best audience score from the franchise. I think audiences didn't know what this movie was. I think the audience that you need to make a billion dollar movie didn't know this is a Transformers movie. You know, you this needs to be called Transformers colon Bumblebee. And it's not. And I think that if you make that one change, this movie goes above 750 at least. Because that mass audience that just goes to see a Transformers movie because it's a Transformers movie didn't go see this because they didn't know it was a Transformers movie. And then you get into the thing of like, well, wait, what kind of Transformers movie is it? Is it a, you know, is it a reboot? Is it a prequel? Is it, and it's kind of multiple, trying to be multiple things at once. And I think that hurts it. 
Um, because I think the worst parts of this movie are the parts that connect it to the other Transformers movies, because it's where it doesn't feel very organic. Like the stuff with just the Haley Steinfeld character and Bumblebee, that stuff works pretty well. It's entertaining, it's lighter, but it's like, okay, I like this. And then all the other stuff where it's like, oh, younger versions of the John Turturro character and the, like the, all the other world building stuff is pretty flat. As soon as you're doing this stuff, like a version of a thing that Michael Bay did, like, sorry, you're not outdoing Michael Bay at like the big Transformer battle stuff. And it doesn't feel anywhere near on the scale of what Bay did. And consequently, despite the fact that it's crazy expensive and this huge thing, it feels kind of small and chintzy, you know? Uh, and I think those are big, big problems that this movie uh, faced and failed to overcome. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it was a a marketing challenge that wasn't well handled uh, with with this film's release. Uh, I think at a certain point for me in this movie, I realized that this is a movie made that I could watch with a kid. Yeah. This is a very good movie to watch with a seven-year-old. Totally. In a way that I'm not sure any of the Transformers sequels are great movies to watch with seven-year-olds, Hello. you try explaining to them about uh, underage relationships in Texas. Uh, that's just not going to fly. Uh, but this is specifically a movie that a seven-year-old kid can watch with you, and both of you are going to have a really good time at the movies. How do you market that? How does that exist within this universe? It's a challenge that isn't completely uh, solved. Uh, within both the marketing and production of this movie. And I also think there are aspects of this movie that are clearly drawn from you know, <laughs> a workshop meeting where they're like, what do we want this to be? And clearly there is just so much, let's make Stranger Things with a robot <laughs> as part of Bumblebee, <laughs> where you just have to roll your eyes. You can imagine that like workshop meeting where they sit down and like, hey, do 80s nostalgia, bring in a, a feisty young female character and a guy that has a crush on her and, and you know, your robots. I, just like, I get it, dude. Just drop it. Be, be your own thing. It, it, it doesn't have its own identity is what I'm trying to get to. It tries to be either a Transformers movie or a Stranger Things with a robot ripoff. It, it never has enough confidence to be itself. And there are moments where it does have confidence to stand on its own. That's when the movie works. There's not enough of them for me. Yeah, I agree. And from there, uh, we don't know what is going to happen. Uh, there is another prequel coming uh, to theaters this weekend, uh, directed by Stephen Capel Jr., uh, who last made uh, the very underrated Creed Two. You know, you talked earlier about sort of the the cartoons falling off the map and the whole thing, but there was in the '90s. I didn't watch it. I wasn't the audience at the time, but there was like a a low key CG series called Transformers Beast Wars, which does have a dedicated fandom, which was relatively well received as far as those things go. And that's kind of the the source of, you know, the story for this new Transformers movie, how that's articulated in the movie. I don't know. Um, we've certainly seen that this movie is like, let's do a lot of robots. And so I'm and, and kind of new human characters. So I'm concerned that a lot of the problems that we've seen in previous movies are just going to be replicated here. But, uh, you know, we'll see. We'll find out this Friday with Transformers Rise of the Beasts. Romeo, Russ, thank you so much for joining us here once again on the Box Office Podcast. 
This show is produced by Box Office Pro in collaboration with the Box Office Studios, Box Office Network, and Record Edit Podcast. Join us again next week for another episode. Bye-bye.